Robin Nichols here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Today we don't have a new book. We're continuing our conversation from last week about the first 10 books we've covered so far and some of the things we've noticed about them as we read them all together. So that's Nightwood by Juna Barnes, Passing by Nella Larson, Cheaper by the Dozen by Frank and Ernestine Gilbreth, Frog and Toad Are Friends by Arnold Lobel, Kristen Lavern's Daughter Trilogy by Sigrid Unset, Ariel by Sylvia Plath, Blues for Mr. Charlie by James Baldwin, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews, and The Designated Mourner by Wallace Shawn. Because of how I divided the recording of last week's episode and this one, the transition isn't great this week. The conversation both starts and ends with us talking about Eleanor from The Haunting of Hill House. At the start here, we're just going to jump into a comment that I was making about um, how Eleanor is lonely in that book. Here we go. I think we actually talked in that episode about um, loneliness making you much worse at making friends. Um, And I think that that's sort of like what Eleanor is embodying, that what she wants from Theo is a complete reversal of all loneliness, um, which is not Mm -hmm. obviously something that Theo could provide. And then ultimately Theo doesn't provide the reversal of any loneliness. Right. But it's it's sort of that that's really sets up Eleanor as the complete outsider. She she cannot find anything she can be on the inside of at all. So obviously the other characters, well certainly Theo and Luke, are outsiders in some way. They're transgressive people in their own way. But Eleanor can't even be accepted into the transgressive club. So this is where we've gotten to. Um, Ah, yes, we have a unified field theory of transgression here. (laughs) Once it becomes a desirable insider status, it actually starts to exclude actual outsiders. And we're sure like this was already happening in real life at the time of Nightwood. Like certainly the Nightwood, the people in the world of Juna Barnes tended to be pretty exclusive, but it wasn't really a subject of literature in the same way that were a subject of literature that could be read by the mainstream. I mean, the haunting of Hill house was not like a little cult book. It was a book published in the mainstream yeah. and everyone under, understood well enough what was going on to be able to read the book. Yeah. Well, I think that um, which books are being read by the mainstream or even the intellectual mainstream, if you want to put Juna Barnes in that category, uh, because after all she is getting, paid to keep writing you know like she's not she's not really an outsider um when she has this whole sort of artistic framework around her um she's only an outsider to the day world but she's an insider in the night world um and to the very rich world yes also very rich um oh yeah which books are um which books are read by the mainstream I think if you think about Cheaper by the Dozen as being, to some degree, a book about PTSD, uh, like a soldier's PTSD, a way of looking at the past that is specifically trying to to counter an out-of-control present um, or like overwhelmingly painful present. Um, and you think about Flowers in the mm-hmm. Attic, I think we sort of landed somewhere around there also of trying to come up with a story in which 
some overwhelming and painful experiences would seem like something everyone could relate to. Um, so those are books mm. that are really popular and those are books that got read by a lot of people, but I, I don't know that they are well and uh, frog and toad. Um, that obviously is also <clears throat> extremely popular. Um, and actually Christian Lovren's daughter, although it's become a little, it became obscure rapidly at the time it was read by a ton of people. Yeah. Let's, let's come back to that one in a second. Cause I, Okay. I just wonder how much it's, it's like um, Sylvia Plath. It's, it's like once you put this sort of unique pain into a way that other people can perceive it and consume it, you're not in Eleanor's role of like truly, truly outsider anymore. You're not just being shoved out of society completely. Um, mm-hmm. the, the people want to understand and connect to and say like, Oh yes, that's my life too even if the specifics are quite different. The reason that I'm going to put Christian Laverne's daughter in a different category is that it's so conservative that she's really not trying to say, I, a person who suffers an enormous amount of pain, should suffer less pain. She's saying, if anything, I should suffer more pain because it would make me a better Catholic. Right? Okay, but wait, wait. What is this? Wait, where did we start with, like, cheaper by the dozen... And Flowers in the Attic being mainstream. I just think of those as being extremely mainstream books that everyone reads um, in childhood. A lot of people read those mm-hmm. books. They're massive bestsellers. And yet, especially in the case of Flowers in the Attic, I think that she's talking about an outsidery kind of suffering, but she presents it in a way that makes it feel relatable and palatable and consumable to people in all different parts of society. Okay. I just want to say like, this is just making me think that a lot of 20th century art and maybe all art, but 20th century art anyway, is about people wanting to think that they are the one, they are the pain haver and to fantasize about being the pain haver. And we even talked about like in the designated mourner, the, the upper middle class or even wealthy artistic type writing the play in which he can fantasize about being the person who's going to be killed first in by the fascists, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, there's, there's no reason that he would be that person. <clears throat> so, so you go back through, like in all these books, there is this, not one that necessarily all many, of them, yeah. but many, many, in many of these books, there's a certain thing where where you as a young person reading these books you're framing yourself as the person who has the special experience that's not like anyone else's and usually not always like not in cheaper by the dozen but in most of these books it's not just a special experience it's a more tragic experience than everyone else so which i think is like it's a very teenage thing like you're feeling the pain no matter what is happening like as a teenager the pain that you feel is completely off the charts, even if you're really just sitting in your room watching television. Describing a painful experience that you think other people don't understand from the inside, um, that you think other people might, might mock you or that they might judge you or that they might fully think that you... Um, should be allowed to be murdered by your mother or um, 
that you know your love for your partner is like ridiculous and uh, endangers you, like mm-hmm. all of these things. Saying, um, from my perspective, it doesn't look like that. You know, that, I think that that's a, um, as you said, maybe twentieth century art, maybe all art. Um, and maybe that's why Blues for Mr. Charlie stands out to me so much because he's not saying that he's saying he's not saying there's something beautiful and precious here that more people should respect he's just saying we've got to get more people because there's nothing else that is going to solve this and not even that will solve it yeah he's definitely like despite the steamy clammy debate he's definitely not offering this as a sexy kind of pain that everybody wants to fantasize about. Well, I mean, maybe that's the clammy. It's like, maybe it's, it's that there just isn't something beautiful at the heart of it. Yeah. Like he, he really does make you feel the ugliness of racism in that way. And how, but we probably wouldn't make this whole podcast about that. Yeah. But I mean, it, it does stand out from a lot of these other things in ways (laughs) that I think are interesting. Um, and I think that that includes, you know, I think that Nella Larson has a view of um, Black American life that is not positive, definitely, uh, where she also is not saying, um, like, even, you know, even wealthy Black people in a, you know, wealthy Black society can thrive. Like, I don't think she's saying that, you know, I think. No, I mean, that's, and that's one of the the works that we somehow didn't talk about that most clearly is in conversation with what's normal with even the title passing, you're passing as normal. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of different kinds of passing going on in the book. Um, And normal is defined as white. It's defined as straight. It's defined as all of the things that, we are going to transgress as we move through the 20th century. Yeah, I, um, I think the, the point that um, Caitlin Greenidge made in, in our conversation with her about uh, how they can imagine everything about each other except uh, liberation, that they understand everything about how the mm-hmm. society works um, except something outside of it outside of the the rules that it gives for what's normal, essentially. Um, I mean, that's, that's a pretty heavy critique. And obviously all the white people are even worse in that book. And I think that all of those things are true of Blues for Mr. Charlie, but even more so. And an even more unendurable degree. Which I guess is kind of what... James Baldwin is famous for is like saying all the things, but even more so. And then we're getting back to like where we started, which is, which is the question of gay people being sad yeah. or black people being sad, that that's like the 20th century was all about like rubbing your face in the sad and saying, no, you have to look at the sad. No, the sad is real. The sad isn't my problem. The sad is your problem. You're the one who's causing this problem. Um, or saying, look, no, my sad is more beautiful and true than you are happy. Like all of those things, but it's definitely like creating that, like there's no outside to the sad. 
Yeah, I I actually wonder if um, just because it's it's a lot easier to say. Um, we have a lot of books about gay people being sad. If only we had some books about gay people being happy than it is to say, we have a lot of books about black people being sad. If only we had some about black people being happy. I think that part of the sadness in the gay people being sad books is that there was, let's say for, for most of these people, a childhood in which they were part of society that later rejected them. Um, I think it's a different, it's yeah, a different that's, relationship I mean, it's so normal, interesting. Like, what I'm trying to say, even though I, I'm yeah, whereas like in, in black, totally defend that, but certainly in black literature, like there's also like, there's a childhood in which you don't realize that your family isn't the culture and you have to s- somehow suddenly realize what white means and what black means. Yeah. But again, going back to, I, I think that that's much more present in, um, passing where she's saying this culture is bullshit but it exists um where i think in blues for mr charlie he was much more saying the church is out to get you um it's going to make you passive it does not have your best interests in mind um i don't i don't know that there is an eden state like an edenic state before racism in Blues for Mr. Charlie. Well, I'm not saying it's the yeah. same. I guess what I'm saying is that in this is like in 20th yeah, century yeah. literature uh, about this experience, um, there are a lot of accounts. It's almost like a contact narrative with with the idea of whiteness that you get to be old enough where you have to learn what it means. Um, and with with gay kids, you're not looking out at the society and saying, oh, my God, I misunderstood everything about society, about who my parents were, about who I could be, about who I am seen as. Instead, with when you're, you're growing up and you start to realize you're gay, it's coming from you and it's inside, not coming from outside. And that's a completely different mindfuck. They're they're two really different mindfucks. Yeah, I I agree. I completely agree that it's two different mindfucks. And that's why I don't want to just put everything under an umbrella of suffering, even though there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people being sad in all of these books. Um, It's also, it's fair to say, like, if there's no suffering, there's no narrative. So we might just be like talking about something that is not unique to the 20th century, but well, I don't know. Do you want to talk about the 19th century for a second? I think you do. It sounds like you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. No, no, I don't, Catherine. Let's move on. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if it's against the rules. <laughs> I think we can make some room. No, I think that uh, definitely if you're talking about romantic era art, there's going to be some suffering and loneliness in there. Um, and I think if there's going to be a plot, there's going to be tension and resolution and stuff like that. I still think that different eras have different qualities to their suffering. And I think that, Oh yeah. Sure. Um, let's say of these 10 books, um, there's a quality of the idea in mu- much of the kind of suffering that there's a possibility of not suffering. And there's a possibility of normal that for whatever reason, these people are excluded from. Yes. Okay, I have one more thing that I want to get to, 
which is the question of, like if we're talking about the 20th century and we're now from the point of, speaking of it from the point of view of the 21st century, where obviously we know so much better than they did. Um, <laughs> what did these people get wrong? Like what, what now seems wrong that then they were completely oblivious to? I've got a big one if you... Yeah, if you, yeah, you should start because I want to think. It's a, good, it's a good question. Okay, my big one, my big one is that we, there are a few instances of the, oh, is it rape? <laughs> That's a big trope. Like, like if this is like the Me Too era, this was the, oh, not me, not me at all era then. It's like people are constantly being forced to have sex and then either it's treated as not really rape, as in Flowers in the Attic or Christian Lavren's daughter she says it's rape, but it's still like not that big a deal, and she can still be married. To yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's that sort of thing. And the blues for Mister Charlie, blues for Mister Charlie is actually the only one. Like again, it stands out where it's very clear to that he means us to know it's rape. Like, yeah, <laughs> but the characters don't know it's rape, so he's finally depicting that. Um, but in the rest of the these books and in countless other books written in the 20th century uh, it's it's all about blurred lines and it's all about rape actually being sexy yeah it is actually remarkable how many times that particular trope has come up because how many other tropes have come up this frequently yeah and and like really it's it is very sad that it's a romance trope and that's the context in which it generally but, comes but up. But apparently a lot of books other than romance too, because I mean, how many, well, I guess both uh, Flowers in the Attic and Christian Love and Sutter are, are in the romance genre, sort of. Overall. Yeah, romance adjacent. I think they had a lot of problems that we haven't solved yet either. Okay, so what are the problems? I think that there are problems around. So Eleanor in haunting of Hill house is doing a lot of domestic labor before she goes to the house and uh, in the flowers in the attic, they're doing a lot of domestic labor in the house. Um, clearly part of what is making the houses creepy is the amount of work involved in caring for people, like whether it's the, the haunting of Hill house, um, like hammering on the walls, the way that Eleanor's mother did as she was aging and dying or, um, the, the children in, uh, flowers in the attic. I don't think we figured that one out. I don't, I don't think we're doing better, especially during the pandemic in figuring out who's supposed to look after people who need looking after. And how we're supposed to manage um, the lives of people who do that care. Like, I, I don't, hmm. I don't think we have any any ideas really that we didn't have in the twentieth century. And I think um, we're probably still going to read some haunted house books about that. But this, this actually is making me realize what I didn't realize before that a lot of these books 
that people have servants. And the servants are completely erased in most of these books or are treated as a sort of furniture for the haunted house and the haunting of Hill House. Um, and yeah. flowers in the attic, they're very much at the back. Like, it's just not acknowledged, really. There's a reference to servants even in the designated mourner. Um, yeah. Um, well, I, I was thinking that it's almost the opposite of the refusal to mention the mom's career in Cheaper by the Dozen. Mm. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Like, we're trying to... A lot of these books are very political. Like they're, the people who write them are political and yet this just, this just doesn't seem to break into consciousness that there is this class of people living alongside them who do all of their dirty work. And those people also have consciousness and lives. You know, who's aware of that though is Kristen Laverne's daughter. I think she is yeah. very aware of that. That book, <laughs> that book is aware of it and is aware. And, and that's part of the suffering that, um, that has dignity is the suffering of actually being the person who does the, the dirty work. Yes. Yeah. I think that's really true. Um, that's really true. So that's one way of solving the problem of what is the meaning of the life of the person who cared for her mother as the mother was dying. Um, one answer is she can just go and die in a car accident because there's nothing else for her and nobody will want her now. And um, another answer to that is she can die of the plague uh, and it will be beautiful. And that's our second retrospective episode. Next week, we'll be back with Anton Chekhov's Cherry Orchard from... uh, 1904. Thank you, as always, to Adam Bear for our music and LitHub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, you can tweet us at LitCenturyPod or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at uh, gmail.com. Thank you. Bye till next week. <laughs>